Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the Rum Rebellion. Bit of Australian history for you, you love to hear it. Uh, this was Australia's first and only, to date, uh, military coup. It arrested and overthrew a certain someone who alert listeners will remember all too well from a previous episode. Uh, well over two years ago, we got across the story of the Mutiny on the Bounty. You can listen to it, episodes, uh, episodes 46 and 47, get across it, where William Bly's command of the ship The Bounty was overthrown by a group of crewmen who then went to settle on Pitkin Island. You might remember that I closed that two-part episode by talking about how Bly went on to be appointed as the governor of the Australian colony of New South Wales and how mutiny and disloyalty seemed to follow him around because guess who the Rum Rebellion was staged against? None other than William Bly. Once again, not satisfied with being just overthrown at sea, he went on to be overthrown on land as well as a colonial governor. Bly was given the, the position of, of governor in the years after the mutiny uh, uh, on the bounty as he had a reputation for being a hard and a stern ruler. And that's exactly what New South Wales needed at the time. The colony was filled with corruption and, and cronyism. Uh, the New South Wales uh, core enjoyed an effective monopoly on trade. We'll get into exactly what all that all meant in a, in, in a little bit, but Sydney was effectively a garrison town at this stage. The military ran basically everything, and with very little cash around, the economy was basically barter-based. And so the New, the New South Wales Corps, they controlled much of it, leading to it being a big inbred mess of profiteering, iniquity, and just, and just general villainy. So Bly, he's called up. He's sent off to the colony to try to bring it back under control, to try to restore law and order and all the rest of it. And I imagine that, you know, the authorities back in London were hoping it would go a little bit better than the affair on the bounty. And I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I kind of already have here because it, um, I mean, yeah, it didn't go well. I've already said it, it, it didn't go too well for old mate William Bly. He ended up being extremely unpopular. He made a ton of enemies and he was ultimately overthrown and arrested in what was, as I say, Australia's first and only military coup. It's a terrific story, as you might imagine. There's a lot to get across with this one. So let's get stuck in. Very happy to get, uh, get be getting into some Australian history once again. So here we go. Off down the track with the story of the Rum, Rum Rebellion. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back. Here we go, and all the way back, back to 1805, 16 years after the mutiny on the bounty, to when William Bly was appointed as the governor of New South Wales. Now, it's worth uh, going back and having a listen to episodes 46 and 47 before this one here. They'll fill you in nicely as to sort of, as to, you know, the sort of bloke that William Bly was, uh, bringing you up to speed in his background. But long story short, Bly was a veteran sailor. He'd travelled around the world with Captain James Cook as a younger bloke before taking charge of, of ships of his own, such as the Bounty. That didn't go too well for him, however. He was overthrown, relieved of command, set adrift in a boat in the middle of the Pacific with those who had remained loyal to him. But he survived. He somehow managed to make it back home to Britain in 1790. He was court-martialed, but then cleared and then promoted uh, and even went on to fight under Admiral Nelson in 1801. But eventually... He was appointed to govern the fledgling colony of New South Wales on the Australian continent. I'm sure many of you know New South Wales established as a penal colony. It was where convicts were sent. Um, uh, me and so many other Australians, of course, to this day, we have uh, we ha we are the descendants of, of those convicts that were sent over. And uh, well, not, not all, not all of us. <laughs> there have been some new arrivals since then, but uh, you know, many Australians can trace their lineage back to people who were transported uh, as a form of punishment. We talked about this in other episodes. I don't know what kind of punishment it is to be sent to Australia. Oh no, Judge, please no, let me stay in this rainy, uh, you know, poverty-infested hellhole and, and die of cholera. Please don't send me to Australia where it's beautiful and sunny every day. Um, but as I say, New South Wales penal colony, and so far, right, New South Wales had had a pretty rough go of things uh, in terms of it being managed and governed fairly. Uh, Bly was appointed as the fourth governor of New South Wales. He was recommended to the position by Sir Joseph Banks, another companion of Captain Cook's, who had also recommended that Bly go on the voyage of the, uh, the bounty in the first place. Maybe they shouldn't listen to Banks when he was talking about anything other than plants. I don't know. Anyway, with the resignation of the uh, the previous governor, New South Wales Governor uh, Philip Gidley King, 
He'd been completely unable to rein in or control the New South Wales Corps. Uh, with his resignation, Bly gets the job, and so he gets ready for the long trip from Britain to Australia. Now, his wife, Betsy, didn't want to come with him. She didn't like the idea of a long sea voyage. But his daughter, Mary Putland, or Putland? Putland. Um, uh, she came along with her husband as well, Bly's son-in-law, John Putland. Now, John Putland was actually, is it Putland? I don't know what it would be. Because, like, you put something down, but it's, like, spelt, I don't know. I've got no idea. Anyway, this bloke, John, John P., whatever his name is, um, he was actually involved with some of the first issues that emerged with Bly and his appointment to the governor, uh, the position of governor. And these issues, believe it or not, I mean, you probably will believe it if you've listened to the previous episodes and know what kind of bloke that Bly is, these issues began well before Bly even arrived in New South Wales. Now, Bly got aboard a convict ship, right? A convict transport ship, the Lady Madeline Sinclair. And this ship was given an escort. The HMS Porpoise was tagging along as a military escort for the, uh, for the convict ship. Now, Putland, he was the first officer aboard the Porpoise, aboard this military escort ship, uh, which was being captained by a bloke named Commander Joseph Short. And to put it mildly, Bly and Short did not get along at all. Both of them were convinced that they themselves were the ones, the, the one who, who was in charge of the expedition, the entire voyage. So they thought, you know, Short thought he was in charge. Bly thought, Bly thought, Bly thought he was in charge. And so they butted heads quickly and often. And this made things a little awkward for young Put- Putland. Putland? I'm still very conflicted as how to pronounce this, this last name. Because he's caught in between his commanding officer, right, and his, you know, father-in-law, two blokes that you don't really want to cross. But when Bly ordered a change of course and Short disagreed, uh, Short actually ordered Putland to, get this, fire a shot across the bow of Bly's ship. Imagine this. I mean, I know a lot of blokes out there have complicated relationships with their fathers-in-law, but I cannot imagine anyone listening to this podcast has ever ever been ordered to fire a piece of artillery at their father-in-law's vessel. That certainly would put a damper on the next Christmas dinner. Short even considered actually... Uh, I mean, he fired the shot, right? Putland actually did this. He followed the order. He fired the shot. And Short considered going one further and ordering him to fire on the Lady Madeline Sinclair it, itself, right, to, uh, to really teach Bly a lesson. Thankfully, however, it didn't come to that. And I wish I could say it didn't come to that because things calmed down, the two blokes got on. No, the reason it didn't come to that is because Bly ordered his crew to board the Porpoise, a British military vessel, and he took control of it. So now Bly really was in charge of the expedition because, you know, he he has seized the other ship um, and it would have been pretty bloody awkward, not just for Putland, but I, I would say everyone else on the two ships. I mean, who are they supposed to obey, the naval commander or the civilian governor? Well, Bly, you know, I guess he put the question to bed by seizing the porpoise and the rest of the journey was relatively uneventful. Uh, But Bly certainly demonstrating the sort of bloke that he was with this sea voyage and already putting a couple of noses out out of joint with the way that he dealt with with the problem that uh, emerged. Anyway, the two ships, they arrived safely in Sydney in August 1806. And there, Bly was ready to take up his position as the governor of New South Wales. And he asserted his dominance even further over Short once he arrived. But uh, what he did, he stripped him of his captaincy. He seized the porpoise for New South Wales. Um, He cancelled the huge land grants that Short had been promised in Australia and sent him home in disgrace to be court-martialed. Now, Short arrived back home in in Britain. He was was acquitted. But I'll tell you this, he definitely came off second best in his conflict with Bly. Um, Unusually, I suppose, given Bly's track record and what we're about to hear him, uh, him go through here. Anyway, Bly... He transferred uh, the ship, the porpoise. He transferred it to under the command of his son-in-law of, of Putland. He, he didn't send it back to Britain. I guess uh, I guess he decided it was fit for a different porpoise. Oh, thank you. And um, he, uh, I mean, obviously there were no feeling, no hard feelings about the shot across the bow. He's just put his son-in-law in charge of this military vessel, and it's now under the command. Or now it's you know it's being used by uh, by the New South Wales uh, colonial government. Um, but as for Blight, he he goes ashore. He heads he heads ashore with his daughter Mary. And uh, moves into to Sydney's government house. Mary takes over running the uh, the household, and uh, Bly begins to uh, to look after the colony. Now, Bly was met with a uh, I don't want to say I don't want to say warm welcome, 
but certainly a welcome, nonetheless, from the military and the civilian populations in Sydney. I guess his reputation preceded him a little bit because there were those who were wary of what he was going to do, particularly those amongst the uh, the New South Wales Corps who were enjoying this uh, this gig that they had. But uh, you know, as he's as he settled in as the new governor, he uh, he met with various stakeholders, people, settlers, military men, all sorts of different people. But one of the blokes that he met, very important bloke in uh, in this story at least, was a fellow named John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur welcomed him on behalf of all the free settlers in New South Wales uh, because he himself was one of these settlers and a very rich and, and powerful one indeed. And, and because John MacArthur is going to be an important character in this tale, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about him. MacArthur, he was born in England, joined the military as a young man, didn't see all that much action, although he travelled around a little bit here and there. But in 1789, he was posted to Sydney with the New South Wales Corps. He was actually part of this corps we're going to talk about in just a sec. Uh, had, a, had a reasonable career there uh, as an officer. And then ultimately, he resigned. Uh, he resigned his post and became a very successful wool farmer and merchant. He owned a lot of land in New South Wales. He was a very wealthy bloke indeed. He was the largest, uh, he was the largest sheep farmer in the colony. And he even travelled back to Britain to lobby for the Australian wool industry and and secured further land grants for himself, the biggest land grants that had ever been granted to anyone in Australia's history. He secured these for himself and headed back to New South Wales to try to enjoy them. But, I mean, long story short, right, he's very rich. He controlled a lot of the wool trade in New South Wales, not to mention his history as an ex-military man. also means that he's well connected to the New South Wales Corps, who you'll remember, you know, these are the blokes more or less running the joint. So, powerful bloke. One who was more than happy with the status quo in New South Wales at the time, and also someone that Bly probably knew he'd have to keep an eye on, as he is uh, in with you know the main source of the colony's issues, the New South Wales Corps, who again the ones that are profiteering uh, and and you know corrupt as all hell, whatever else. I mean, let, let let's talk about the New South Wales Corps and what Bly was actually up against as he arrived in this new colony here. Well, the reason that the New South Wales Corps were able to do what they were doing, right, is that they were essentially a, a gang of well-connected military blokes who were in charge of a colony that lacked much in the way of a cash economy. And this turned out to be a pretty bad deal for ordinary people who weren't part of this, you know, military gang, more or less. Instead of cash, people living in New South Wales often relied upon bartering for, you know, the trade and sale of goods, although... There was a de facto currency, uh, which was, of course, rum or any other type of distilled booze. Um, the New South Wales Corps, with their connection, their authority, and of course their wealth as well, they were easily able to buy up stocks of rum that arrived in Sydney, and then they could trade the rum that they bought very plentifully and relatively cheaply for goods and services, usually jacking up the price of the rum as they did so. So they're effectively buying money at a cheaper price and then spending it at a higher value and in order and and in you know as a consequence of doing that lining their own pockets and what's worse i guess or you know where this really starts to to uh, to take off is that they use this wealth particularly macarthur he was a big part of this they use this wealth to import stills and began and they began to buy up grain to use the stills to make more booze. Effectively, they're not only buying money as it comes in from ships. These rum, these import, uh, you know, the, the the consignments of rum. They're also buying the devices they need, right, to make more money and make themselves even wealthier because they now control not only the supply of rum that's incoming to the country, but also can make more themselves. And on top of that. The fact that they're buying up all this grain, it led to wheat shortages amongst the rest of the population. So it was all bad news for anyone who wasn't part of the uh, part of the New South Wales Corps at this stage, or the the Rum Corps as they became known. They used their combination of of military and economic power to exploit the other people living in New South Wales. And also, did I mention, sorry, another thing that is really important about the position that the New South Wales Corps had here? Not only did they have a stranglehold on the New South Wales economy, not only did they have complete, you know, nearly unfettered monopoly, m- monopolistic access to the to the, the de facto currency of the, of the colony, they also had a steady supply of free labour, thanks to the convicts that were constantly being shipped to Australia, who the Corps could order about and make them do whatever they wanted. So the New South Wales Corps are in a very good position 
you'd have to think. And various governors had attempted to curtail the power of the of, of the core and none had had too much luck. They'd tried restricting the import of rum. They'd tried taxing it. Um, they'd tried to establish public supply shops for people so they didn't have to rely on the core for, for access to goods and services. And none of this had worked. It turns out that the rich and powerful people who enjoyed a monopolistic control over the colony's currency and trade didn't really want to let go of it. Surprise, surprise. So... This was Bly's task, to take the rum core down a peg or two and loosen the stranglehold that the rich and powerful men like MacArthur had on the, on, the, uh, on the colony's economy. Now, the result of Bly's efforts to curtail the rum core was, of course, the coup that has, is known to history as the Rum Rebellion. Before we continue, I want to point out something here. While rum obviously played a part in this story as the de facto currency of New South Wales at the time. And while, you know, the, the import and, 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 uh, and creation or the, the, dist- the distillation of, of rum and other booze, whatever else, uh, was, it was part of this issue. The name Rum Rebellion isn't a very good one because it wasn't the key issue at stake in this conflict. The key issue at stake here was a, a conflict, I guess, between the 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 civilian, the military governance of New South Wales and the different approaches that they had, both, in my view, equally flawed. The the on on Bly's side of things, he's effectively wanting to prop up what is a kind of feudal system here, with unfree labour being imported into uh, into New South Wales um, and used to, you know. Uh, I guess set up or bolster the the, the fledgling uh, the fledgling colony, whereas the 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 New South Wales core and their you know pretty underhanded economic dealings are wanting to turn it into this you know free market libertarian paradise where an enormous amount of near oligarchical control can be held in the hands of those you know who have all the military all the economic power both deeply flawed social and economic models in my view, but rum. While one of the you know main factors, I guess, in or one of the key factors in the way that the economy functioned, it's a bit of a misnomer to think that this issue was over you know the the drinking or the you know just getting off your off your face on uh, on the source here. The reason we call it the Rum Rebellion is that historians later on who wrote about this issue, who were very heavily influenced by the temperance movement, attempted to paint it as such. They wanted to talk about how alcohol is the, the root of all this evil and how the rum rebellion is, it, it came back to the, the way that alcohol corrupts the hearts and the minds of people, whatever else. Not quite true, but that's the name that has stuck. So that's the name that we're using. But I don't want you to think that, again, it was it was people getting off their chops and, you know, getting pissed as newts that, that resulted in this, because really rum was just a it was one of many factors in the overall conflict that that took place here between Bly and MacArthur and all the rest of them. It was a political, it was a it was an economic, a social, and and a, and a political one. It wasn't you know it wasn't about actual alcohol. Anyway, on to Bly's task. He arrives, he sets up shop, and he's determined to do his best as governor. Which you know, given the track record of this bloke, we're not going to set our expectations too high. But to his credit. He didn't waste any time after his arrival in attempting to make things better in New South Wales. The first thing that he did was sent government relief to those who had been hit by a spate of recent floods. These floods, floods had devastated some settlers, some farmers, and had uh, had really, really very severely negatively impacted their livelihoods. And so he sent them supplies and he sent them livestock. He sent them what they needed to get themselves back on, tra- on track. They were doing it pretty tough, a lot tougher than they needed to as well. Because before Bly came in and intervened with this government aid, they had been at the mercy of the New South Wales Corps, who were gouging the pants off of them. They were gouging them for all they were worth in their time of need. Of course, losing their livelihood, their stocks, their supplies, their uh, their, their you know the, the cattle and sheep that they might have been farming. And so Governor Bly steps in. He says, "No, it's all right, you blokes. I'll sort you out with these government supplies. Don't even worry about it. We'll sort out some loans. You can pay us back when you can afford it. It's all good. Don't even worry about it." So. You know, with the with the government aid, with the, these reasonably generous loans to the settlers and farmers who needed support in the wake of the floods, um, it, it meant that not only were they not reliant on the core for for supplies and the like, it also meant that he made himself a fair number of friends. Uh, Governor Bly, he made a fair number of friends amongst the common settlers and the farmer and the farmers, but 
He also made a fair number of enemies, of course, amongst the New South Wales Corps because he immediately revealed himself to, to be someone who was going to take action here. Here he was, this upstart governor coming in and upsetting the apple cart, undermining all the hard work that the Corps had done in establishing their exploitative monopoly over the New South Wales economy. I mean, who's it? Who's he think he is, mate? But Bly didn't stop there. No, no, no. He had a job and he was going to see it through. He turned to the issue of, uh, you know, the, the, this economic monopoly that the, the, the core enjoyed. And uh, at its centre, of course, was this de facto currency, rum. So he banned the use of rum and other booze as a currency. He gutted the monopoly that the, uh, the New South Wales core had on the market. As they effectively controlled the supply of currency before this, now... Bly is out here saying, no, you can't use booze. You've got to use other things like bloody coins and whatnot, as like what everyone else does here, mate, you know. So Bly, he, he stops the, uh, the, the practice of, um, of booze being used as a, uh, as, as a currency. He does what he can to try to curtail the, its, its importation, its, uh, its, its manufacture. But he goes even further than this because he also stop the practice of handing out generous land grants to New South Wales core officers. And you can imagine how that went down, like a bloody fart in an elevator, mate. All these officers, they've not only lost their monopoly and their economic power, but now they're also not getting the land that they expected. So you might be thinking, bloody hell, maybe I've misjudged this blithe fella. He doesn't sound too bad. Champion of the common man, hero of the downtrodden, here to right wrongs and stand up for the little fella. But I'll stop you there. Because, you know, you need the full picture. Bly may have pulled back on land grants. He may have uh, tried to fix the economy, or the, the, you know, the, the economic uh, ironclad grip that, uh, that the Corps had over the colony. He may have helped the, uh, these farmers and settlers out in their time of need. But he didn't really do too much of a good job in, in other areas. For example, you know, he did, he did pull back pretty significantly on the land grants, but he didn't stop them altogether. And in fact, about... Half of the land grants that he did dish out were to his daughter. So now we've got an exciting new flavour of corruption. On top of this, he severely mismanaged other areas of governance. Uh, for example, there were a group of convicts who were put on trial for staging a revolt. Uh, after their trial, they were acquitted, but Bly locked them up anyway. So that didn't go down too well. And he also locked up a couple of merchants who were critical of him. They got on the wrong side of him, wrote a letter that he didn't like, and this didn't go down too well when he just locked them up for, you know, speaking their minds here. He also made a few more um, high-profile pretty powerful enemies by doing things such as firing, uh, you know, leading figures from their uh, from public office. But one of the most powerful and one of the most high-profile enemies that he made, of course, was John MacArthur. This and this was where these these are where the real problems began for Bly when he got offside with John McCarthy. You remember the bloke I was talking about before, the wealthy sheep magnate. Uh, that's magnet M A G N A T E, not magnet, because um, you know I, I said he he was born in England, not not in Wales. <laughs> you anyway, uh, know, MacArthur he, he MacArthur being one of the blokes uh, who had bought up colossal quantities of rum as it came to Sydney, before then, you know, distributing amongst his mates in the core. And he'd also been using this this wealth, as I say, to import these stills that I mentioned before. So he was hit very bloody hard when Bly you know, has come in with all these, new, these new regulations. And the two of them, they began to butt heads in a major way. And as time passed and as Bly's governorship continued, things only got worse between the two blokes, as you might have, as you might have guessed. Bly interfered with MacArthur's land, he uh, he gutted some of the land grants or blocked them all together that, that, that MacArthur had been given. He repurposed agricultural land to develop Sydney's, uh, Sydney's urban centre further. Uh, and then, to add insult to injury, Bly also interfered with MacArthur's private business interests, ruling against him when a case involving, de- a case involving debt was brought all the way to the government to adjudicate upon. He ruled against MacArthur. And... So the enmity between these two blokes was pretty palpable, and it all came a gutzer in 1807, a couple of years after uh, Bly had arrived in Sydney. Now, and this issue revolved around a an escaped convict, uh, and it very, very quickly spiralled out of control between these two blokes. MacArthur had a ship. He had a ship called the Parramatta. It was a schooner. And in June 1807, a convict managed to sneak aboard the ship stow away and escaped as the ship sailed off from Sydney. 
Now, obviously, Bly is going to be pissed off about a convict escaping. That's no good for him. But why did it add fuel to the feud between him and MacArthur? Well, back then, ships' owners had to pay the government a bond, a deposit, essentially. It was a lot of money, £900, over £85,000 in today's money, a lot of money. They had to pay the government this bond to make sure that they didn't help convicts escape. And when a ship would, you know, set off and come back safely with no issue, the bond would be returned. But if you were found to have played a part in convicts escaping aboard your ships, the government would keep the bond. And so it very, very heavily disincentivized ships' owners from getting involved in smuggling convicts away to freedom because they would forfeit a huge amount of money if they were found to have done this. Well... A convict escaped on MacArthur's ship. That much is irrefutable. So Bly took the opportunity. He was more than happy to turn the screws in his enemy, blame him wholeheartedly, and he declared that MacArthur's bond was forfeit. Now, whether MacArthur had any involvement in the escaping of the in this convict's escape, it, it, it's thought that he probably didn't. But all the same, Bly was interested in the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, and he was certainly more than happy to come down like a ton of bricks on his political enemy here and, as I say, turn the screws on John MacArthur. Now, £85,000 in today's money, £900 back then, a lot of money. It was not a small amount by any means, and MacArthur refused to pay it. He refused the, to accept this, uh, uh, you know, this decision that Bly had made to keep the bond, and so Bly seized his ship. He seized the uh, the Parramatta when it returned, and, and he ordered MacArthur to appear in court to hear these charges. And the judge who was placed in charge of this court that was going to try MacArthur just so happened to be a staunch ally of Bly's, a bloke whose name was Richard Atkins, who also didn't like MacArthur very much at all. MacArthur realised that this whole thing was going to be a kangaroo court. He refused to appear, uh, but he did so. With the, he resisted Bly's uh, call to trial with the support of some of the New South Wales Corps officers. So what did Bly do? Well, we know what he's like. We know what happens to him when people. We know what happens when people stand up to him and, and try to, uh, you know, try to undermine his authority. He declared that he was once again the victim of a mutiny. Yep. You'd think that he would hesitate before inviting this uh, this sort of thing once again, but that's how it went here. He declared the actions of the uh, of the six officers treasonous. He declared the mutineers, and he ordered Major George Johnston, who was in charge of the New South Wales Corps at the time, to attend him in Government House so they could deal with this mutiny. But Johnston refused to come. He refused to come, and his excuse as to why he didn't come and deal with this, of all things. He said that he had wrecked his cart while driving about, and and so he couldn't make it. He ba- he was basically he's, he's come in with a oh sorry boss can't make it to work. I've had a car crash. Yeah, no, sorry about that, mate. Johnston refused to act against his own men. These six uh, officers and MacArthur, I guess, who wasn't under Johnston's command, but still the two were associated. They were mates, and so Bly, right. He's refusing to back down on the mutiny. He is refusing to rescind his position that, you know, these these officers have behaved treasonously. And as we head into 1808, this stalemate continues. Johnston is re- refusing to act against his own men. Bly's refusing to back down. But the stalemate doesn't continue for very long because MacArthur was once again summoned to court on the 25th of January and once again failed to appear. And so on the 26th of January, Bly ordered his arrest. He summoned the mutinous officers and Major Johnston to Government House to deal with this treasonous behaviour, and he decided to stamp his authority on this situation. He wasn't going to be made a mockery of. He wasn't going to allow another mutiny to get the best of him. Except it did. Because Johnston and the officers, they did go to Government House after all. You know, in fairness to them, they were summoned to Government House and they did turn up, but perhaps not under the circumstances that Bly would have preferred. Johnson didn't like Bly. He saw him as an interfering and and meddlesome governor trying to crack down on the economic power of the New South Wales Corps. And so rather than go straight to Government House and answer the summons, Johnson instead took a little detour. He marched to the jail. He ordered MacArthur be released. And then he gathered the New South Wales Corps together. He got all these blokes together and marched on Government House beginning Australia's first ever military coup. Now, they didn't do this as a military operation. They didn't do it as a, you know, a clandestine affair or even a violent one. 
They did it with all the pomp and circumstance of a military parade. The band was playing along as the as the corps marched on Government House. They didn't make a secret of it. People are coming out to see this spectacle. As Johnston and his men turn up at Government House, charge Bly with being <clears throat> unfit to exercise the supreme authority another moment in this colony, and the call, they were ready to march into Government House and arrest Bly himself. However, they were met at the front of Government House with stiff resistance. Stiff resistance, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. They had to get through Mary Putland, who had come to the front of the building brandishing her parasol and blocking the, the entrance for the Corps as they turned up. Australia's one and only military coup involved a couple of hundred blokes having a great big song and a dance, marching down the Sydney streets to the, uh, to the, beat, of the uh, to beat of their drums uh, of the marching band there and being met with the furious opposition of the governor's daughter with her umbrella. She come out and as the coup, as the Corps are trying to walk into the uh, into government house, she's whacking them with the umbrella, telling them to get out of here, all that sort of stuff. But luckily... Mary Putland, her fearsome umbrella, they were eventually overcome without anyone being injured, I might add, and the Corps, they headed inside to arrest Bly. The Battle of Government House was over, casualties, nil all, although the victory, you'd have to say, did not go the way of brave Mary Putland and her parasol. Anyway, the Corps, they march inside Government House and they begin to search for Bly, and the story goes that he was hiding under his bed or at least behind it. Something that the New South Wales Corps were more than happy to tell anyone who would listen because it depicted Bly as a coward. In truth, he may not have been hiding. Some historians believe that he was he was making preparations. Uh, he was getting ready to escape, uh, to run away from Sydney, which, I mean, I guess is kind of equally cowardly, um, after realising which way the wind was blowing, that he was you know going to be subjected to this military coup. But Whatever the case, I mean, look, this wasn't his first mutiny. After all, you know, he, he, he probably knew how to behave in a situation like this, but it didn't matter. He was arrested before he could flee, uh, and whether he was or wasn't dragged out from under the bed remains a uh, remains a matter of historical debate. But that's it for Bly. He was taken into New South Wales Corps custody. Johnston declared himself in charge of the colony and promoted himself to Lieutenant Colonel as well, just, you know, for good measure. The first thing that Johnston did was organise a trial for MacArthur and the officers that were accused of mutiny and treason. you remember them. And wouldn't you know it, the judge that he picked to preside over the trial was very forgiving and very sympathetic to their views, and all of them were acquitted. No treason here, says the judge. But it gets better than this, because MacArthur was then appointed as the Colonial Secretary for New, for New South Wales. This was a position that gave him effective control over the colony's entire economy. So all of a sudden, The wealthiest landowner, the richest settler in the colony, is now put in charge of its economic affairs. So how is that one going to end? Other blokes that Bly had fired were uh, returned to their positions or or even given further promotions. And generally speaking, the cronyism, the corruption, was more pronounced than ever with Johnson in charge. Bly was kept under house arrest. He was kept in government house with his daughter while Johnson's team went through all of his papers and his belongings, looking for ways to make a proper case against Bly when people back in London found out what had happened. Because, of course, this bloke's just staged a military coup. He has to do his homework. He has to cover his ass and, and make sure that he's going to be able to you know, defend his actions. So he's looking for ways to paint Bly as incompetent, tyrannical, whatever, right? But one really interesting thing that emerged here, because of the efforts of the New South Wales court to tarnish Bly's name, paint him as this, uh, you know, as the villain here. In attempting to turn public opinion against Bly, the New South Wales court led to what very well may be Australia's first ever public art exhibition. I mean, it was certainly, it certainly was Australia's first ever political cartoon anyway. They displayed a, a watercolour painting that depicted Bly being pulled out from under his bed by the New South Wales Court. You can jump online and have a look at this picture. It, it, it survived through to the current day. But with this painting, Bly was quite literally painted as a coward. And it did do something to turn public opinion against Bly because he wasn't portrayed in a very gentlemanly or upstanding way. He was portrayed as, 
you know, a, a lily-livered coward, which was quite something back in those days. The other thing that Johnston did as well, the other thing that he did, he informed his commanding officer, a bloke whose name was Colonel William Patterson. Now, Patterson was down in Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania, as it's known these days. Johnston told Patterson that he had um, relieved Bly of his command and was now in charge of the colony. And Patterson responded by basically just doing nothing at all. Patterson didn't want to get involved. He wanted to wait and see what Britain would do. I mean, smart bloke, right? Sitting on the fence, waiting to see the prevailing winds before committing to a side. Because think of it this way. Both, both Johnston and Bly believe they're in the right. Bly is the lawfully mandated governor of New, of, of New South Wales. However, Johnston has, again, lawful command of the New South Wales Corps. And if, he, if his coup is deemed lawful, he will be the one who is riding high and, and judged to have been in the right, whereas Bly will be portrayed as this, you know, t- tyrannical, meddlesome, you know, near dictator type figure. So Patterson recognises that it could go either way, depending if London either, you know, backs their governor and says, no, 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 this military coup is unlawful, you shouldn't have done that, or if they back Johnson and say, yeah, he was a dud, you know, so we should have known better, he's already under, he's already gone through a mutiny, so not surprised that there's been a second one here. So even if his bum's kind of hurting from sitting on the fence, Patterson decides to do nothing. And they and again is waiting for for response for a response from uh, from Britain. Well, what Britain did was this, right? They sent a new bloke, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Joseph Favreau, to take charge of the New South Wales colony as act a colony as acting Lieutenant Governor until they could try to sort out that what they were going to do with Johnson uh, with Johnson and Bly. Now. Patterson heard this. He heard that Britain was sending a, a, a new lieutenant, a lieutenant governor and he goes, oh, good. Now I don't have to be involved. And he remained in Van, Van Diemen's Land taking care of what he was doing down there, which just goes to show how little he wanted to get involved in this issue. When your choices are, one, stay in Tasmania and two, literally anything else the other option has to be pretty bloody bad for you to want to stay behind in Tasmania. Let me tell you this. So it goes to show just how uninvolved Patterson was determined to stay. Anyway, for vote, he shipped off to Sydney. He arrives in mid-1808. He took a, a surgically accurate middle line with the whole issue uh, uh, with his role as, as acting lieutenant governor. He took over governance of the colony from Johnston. And, uh, and like Bly, he irritated people like MacArthur with the way that he exercised power, being a little too meddlesome for the, uh, for, you know, the old guard for the, for the New South Wales cause liking. But Favreau had restraint, and he, he was making very clear efforts to improve the colony. Instead of trying to just completely run roughshod over the power the New South Wales Corps had, what he did instead was focus on building roads and bridges, looking after buildings and infrastructure and not getting people offside like Bly had. He, was a, he, he did a much better job for Vo than Bly did and, and, and didn't break quite as many eggs. And he was quite balanced in his approach to this conflict between Bly and, uh, you know, and Johnson and, and MacArthur because he didn't do much better by Bly either. Favreau agreed that Bly's behaviour as governor had been too much. He kept him locked up under house arrest until word came from Britain as to what to do with him. So as a caretaker, Favreau, you've got to give him credit. He did a decent job. But the word from London that all these people were waiting on, it never came. It seemed that no one really wanted to make a decision about what should be done with the governor, what should be done with Johnson, what should be done with the fact that there had been a military coup staged in the colony. But eventually, when the new year arrived in 1809, and with it, no word, still no word onto what to do with Bly, Favreau decided that he had to do something. He, he had to take action. He had to take charge and deal with his situation. And so what did he do? What did he do to, to be the one to finally take responsibility for what was going on and finally put the issue to bed? He called in Patterson. <laughs> he didn't want to deal with it himself. He called in Patterson from Van Diemen's Land and told him to sort it out. Delegation, mate. It's, it's not evading responsibility. It's delegation. So Patterson, at long last, he finally had to deal with this situation. He finally sailed up from Van Diemen's Land to New South Wales. And at last, the whole, the whole situation was resolved with, uh, with Bly and Johnston and MacArthur. Patterson, he decided to ship Johnston and MacArthur back to London to face trial, as again, they had, after all, 
staged a military coup and it probably wasn't the right thing to do. And as for Bly, he was removed from Government House and he was confined to the New South Wales core barracks. So neither of them are getting away with anything. You know when you you know you know when you're a kid, right, and you fought with your sibling, but then you tried to sort it out between the two of you because you both knew that if you called mum or dad in, you'd both get in even more trouble than you would have been otherwise. That's basically what happened here. Johnson MacArthur shipped off to trace for, uh, to face trial back in Britain. Um, and then shortly after this, Bly, I mean, he's locked up in the barracks and then eventually put back on the porpoise, the ship that he'd given to his son-in-law, and he's ordered to return back to Britain as well. It seemed like Patterson really was trying to hedge his bets and say, well, listen, I don't, I don't want to, you know, come down on one side or the other in case I get in trouble. So, you know what? You're all in trouble. That's, that's just how I'm dealing with it. And he sends, or attempts to, at least, attempts to send all of them back to Britain. Now, Johnston... MacArthur, they're sent back, they face trial. We'll come, we'll come to that in a second. Bly, on the other hand, he refused to return to Britain. He did not go back as commanded by Patterson. Instead, he sailed. And again, this is a mark of just how desperate he was. He sailed to Van Diemen's Land. He, he voluntarily and willingly went to Tasmania under his own steam, heading to Hobart to try to secure the support of the lieutenant lieutenant governor there. How desperate must you be to make a voluntary journey to Tasmania? He hoped that the the lieutenant uh, governor there, a bloke whose name was David Collins, he hoped that he'd find an ally in Collins and that he would help him uh, reclaim his governorship in New South Wales, which he still considered to be, you know, his legitimate and, and, and lawfully given right. But what Collins did instead was follow Patterson's orders. And uh, rather than help his fellow governor, he instead confined Bly to the porpoise, kept him aboard the ship in the mouth of the Derwent River until the next year. Oops. So Bly didn't get the support that he'd hoped for in a, in a fellow governor and instead was stuck in Van Diemen's land for just under a year, the poor bastard. I mean, look, I know he's made mistakes, and we're, and I know we've come down on Bly pretty pretty heavily for his conduct here in this episode, but come on. Cruel and unusual punishment, mate, and all that. I mean, this poor bloke. Anyway, Bly refused to sail back to Britain until a lawfully appointed successor arrived in New South Wales. He was being very stubborn about it, but as he couldn't return to Sydney, he was just kind of stuck in Hobart until early 1810, when things finally changed. Finally, a new governor, a proper governor, was sent, Lachlan Macquarie. Now, Lachlan Macquarie, rather than being a naval man, before this, uh, all the governors that had been sent to New South Wales had been out of the Navy, but Macquarie, he was an army fellow, and the this this represented a change from the colonial office. They wanted to, uh, back in London, they wanted to... Uh, <laughs> They wanted to change things up in New South Wales because clearly these string of of naval governors hadn't been doing a good job. So Macquarie instead, he was sent over uh, to take care of business. And on top of that, really importantly, the New South Wales Corps was recalled in its entirety to Britain. And it was replaced with a different regiment. Very wisely, in my opinion, as it kind of dealt with the whole problem that the colony was having to begin with, which was, you know, the, the... misconduct of an entire regimental unit that were that made up the, the New South Wales Corps. So getting rid of them entirely, along with a new governor, went a long way in, uh, I guess, offering the colony a fresh start when it came to establishing a, uh, a more positive social, political, economic and, and military atmosphere. And the, the other thing, I mean, I want to talk about Governor Macquarie here because he did a lot to to improve the fortunes of New South Wales and I guess, you know, the fledgling colonial interests in Australia uh, more broadly. He did a much better job of of managing the colony. He helped transform it from this near feudal social system with unfree labour and a military ruling class, I said before, to a freer settlement with enormous reforms to to social and economic affairs. He cancelled all the land grants and appointments that had been made under Johnston. Uh, and with the removal of the New South Wales Corps, he was able to make a fresh start in running the, the colony's affairs. He had a major influence on the development of early Australian settlement. He encouraged reform, uh, integrated free con- freed convicts. Uh, he, he was a, a big proponent of, of, of exploration, of development and, and free spending on public works to the point that, you know, people back in London were worried about, about how much money he was spending on developing this colony. Um, he was also one of the first people to use the term Australia in an official capacity. Macquarie was an important, he was an influential bloke, and he 
had a big impact on on the early history of, of Australian settlement. But unfortunately, his legacy, of course, is uh, is mixed with his his terrible treatment of I mean, surprise, surprise, the Indigenous people of Australia, who definitely got a very raw deal, as so many Indigenous populations did uh, throughout the colonial era. Um, Macquarie was was very ready to use military force against Aboriginals when he when he deemed it necessary. He forced Indigenous children to attend European style schools in an effort to marginalise Indigenous culture. Uh, he sent troops on punitive expeditions when Indigenous communities re- resisted the colonists. Some of these expeditions resulted in massacres of Indigenous people. And overall, his legacy is is mixed because of these things, but. Even if it is a mixed legacy, it's still a very important one in Australia's broader history. Anyway, for Bly, MacArthur and Johnston, they were all headed back to Britain uh, where they faced their respective music in 1810. Bly was finally, uh, he finally agreed to head back to Britain after, uh, well, I mean, I think this is actually quite clever what happened here, right? Bly was able to return to Sydney. He left Hobart, returned to Sydney where he was reinstated officially as governor for a single day and then ordered to return to Britain. Now, this obviously soothed soothed his ego. He wasn't leaving in shame or disgrace, but instead with all the due process of the law and, and, and order. And, I mean, you can kind of imagine Governor Macquarie rolling his eyes as Bly finally got aboard his ship and sailed back off to Britain. Finally, this issue had been put to bed for him, and he got on with the business of ruling the colony. But for Bly... Heading back to uh, with Bly heading back to Britain, the three main players in the Rum Rebellion, Bly, MacArthur, and Johnston, they uh, they returned back to London uh, in order to uh, you know I guess again as I say face the music, face the consequences of what had happened. Now the coup had at last been officially declared unlawful. It was declared as a mutiny, and Johnston ended up in in a bit of trouble here. Bly hurried back to be uh, to London to be part of the trial of Johnston once this uh, once this news spread, and because the, the authorities in London they took a pretty dim view of Johnston's behaviour. He had, after all, undertaken unlaw- an unlawful military coup, and, and this couldn't go unpunished. But once he was found guilty of, of his in, of his involvement in this affair, his sentence was very lenient indeed. He was thrown out of the military in disgrace. But he suffered no further penalty, and in fact, he returned to Australia as a private citizen, went back to his estate, and was able to live in great comfort for the rest of his life. Uh, he married a convict, he had uh, seven kids with her, and uh, lived out the rest of his days in, in relative wealth uh, as well, you know, the, the legacy of his role as a, as, as a formerly leading figure of the, uh, of the colony. As for MacArthur, MacArthur actually wasn't tried. He exploited a number of, uh, of legal loopholes that enabled him to get out of an official trial. But was nonetheless banned from returning to Australia for seven years, which was a punishment in and of itself, given that he was such a you know such a a wealthy and an important bloke over there. Um, because he pissed off a lot of people uh, because of his involvement in, in and he, I mean he had enemies anyway, as, as any successful business person does. Uh, he was banned from returning to the colony of New South Wales. Uh, he got he got offside with a lot of people, particularly because he refused to acknowledge that he'd done anything wrong. And so he wasn't allowed back into Australia for a long, long time. Eventually, the ban was lifted in 1817. He was able to return to his woolly empire back in Sydney. And there he continued to make money hand over fist. He exported ridiculous amounts of wool. Australia's wool market today is still famous. I mean, and merinos are the best in the world. Um, and a lot of that is because of the the work that uh, MacArthur did in setting up the industry all those years ago. He was the richest bloke in New South Wales. He got into horses. His sons became famous thoroughbred breeders. Uh, and he also set up Australia's first ever commercial vineyard. So wool, horses and wine. MacArthur was a foundational part of some of Australia's most important industries. And back when Australia used to have uh, $1 and $2 notes, he was actually on the, the $2 note. There was a picture of him and a picture of a sheep on Australia's $2 note. We don't use him anymore, so he's not in the currency these days. But uh, a a very important bloke in Australia's history, regardless of what you think of him. As for Bly, well, (laughs) what do you think happened to this bloke? Because for the second time in his career, right, he has been overthrown from his position of government-appointed power. Once again, he'd suffered a mutiny, been humiliated and disempowered by those beneath him. Last time, after the mutiny on the bounty... London had cleared him of wrongdoing, although recognising that his style of leadership probably contributed to people's discontent with him, and then promoted him and allowed his career to continue and flourish. So what do you think happened this time, second time around? Well, London 
cleared him of wrongdoing, although they recognised that his style of leadership probably contributed to people's discontent with him, and then promoted him and allowed his career to continue and flourish. I don't know how he did it, but for the second time, William Bly got away with being a terrible leader who suffered a mutiny because he just didn't know how to deal with those under him. And not only did he get away with it, but was rewarded again for his failure. He was promoted to Rear Admiral and his career continued until his death in 1817. Although it's probably worth mentioning that he quite wisely, in my opinion, was never given command of a ship again. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Rum Rebellion, the only military coup to have taken place in all of Australia's history. And uh, I'll tell you what, I hope it remains the only military coup that has ever happened in Australia's history because I'm, I'm very certain we don't need another one of them. Anyway. Thanks for listening to this episode of Half House History. Always good to get across some Australian history. If you've got an idea for a topic, please let me know. Halfhousehistory.net is the website, and there's a contact form that you can get in, use to get in touch with the show. Uh, and, of course, if you want uh, to support the show uh, from a financial standpoint, there are two ways to do this. You can either buy stuff from the merch shop, bit.ly slash H-A-H merch. There's also a link on the website. You can uh, you can follow to, to go and snag yourself some goodies there. Or if you don't want to, you know, get stuff sent to you in the post uh you can uh, you can go to the patreon uh patreon.com slash half history and, and you can get um i guess less physically tangible but quite entertaining uh bits and pieces uncut episodes early access to shows show notes all the rest of it is available there thank you to the people tirelessly supporting me on patreon good on you um and uh anchor.fm if you want to subscribe to the show on you know Spotify, iTunes, what have you. It, it should all be there. Uh, some teething issues with some platforms. I do apologize for that. If there are ever any technical issues with the podcast, please let me know and I'll try to sort them out as quickly as possible. Uh, but that's it. Thanks for being part of this episode. Thanks for being part of this dumb podcast. And I'll see you next week with more nonsense. I want to leave you not with the question posed on Reddit this time, but um, a bit of gear from Mitchell and Webb, which has always stuck with me when thinking about New South Wales. I don't know why New South Wales is called New South Wales. It's a very confusing name, as Mitchell and Webb kind of explore in one of their bits. Here's what they had to say on it. Lush subtropical plains stretching as far as the eye can see. It's 90 degrees in the shade, even though it's November. And there are herds of seven foot tall creatures bouncing across the landscape at tremendous speeds. Do you know where it reminds me of? Wales. Wales.